Hey, good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning online. Glad you're, glad you're gathering to worship. Uh, I wanna pray for us as we dive into God's word. This morning, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter nine. So as you might expect, I'd like you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter three. Um, so open to Genesis chapter three. We'll start there. We'll eventually get to Hebrews nine after we do Genesis four, five, six. No, we're not gonna do that. Um, but I would like to just ask God's help in this moment, so if you'd pray with me, that would be great. Lord Jesus, we are, we are indeed grateful for all that you have done, um, particularly what you have done through the blood of your cross, and the sacrifice that you made, and the things that you accomplished. And um, we ask that as, as your people, you would meet with us now. Father, thank you for the word, and for your presence, and for your will that you want to accomplish in and through us. And we ask that that would happen even a little bit as we spend this time um, wrestling with your word. Uh, Holy Spirit, we offer our hearts and our lives. We just ask that you'd work in them to show us Jesus and to make us more like him. It's in his name we pray, amen. So Genesis chapter three, there's a very sad couple of lines. Um, I'll just read you the last two verses there. Uh, Genesis 3.23 says, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Very ominous and tragic words. Adam and Eve are banished from the presence of God. Now, there's a lot that has gone on in them and in the world, and this is kind of a final, in one sense, step that's um, both putting on display and kind of finalizing what's happened. God told him, if you sin um, in that day, what you're, you're basically you're rebelling against me. You're choosing to set yourself up as God instead of me, and that's gonna do a number of things. One, that's gonna kill you. Um, there's judgment that comes with that, and you will be cut off from the source of life, that's me. And, and Adam and Eve did die. They died uh, in their relationship with God spiritually. Immediately there was a death. Uh, but physically there is an immediate death too. It just takes a while to show up, like a, a rose cut off from a bush. Looks alive, but it's actually dying. And Adam and Eve and all people, in fact, are born into the world dying because we're, we're cut off from our source of life, we were created for relationship with God. If you could get yourself on the original instruction manual, the original owner's manual of human, that would be right there. The opening paragraph would be the purpose that we have is to live in relationship with God. We were designed for that, we were designed to thrive in that, that's where our significance comes from, that's where our meaning comes from, that's where our acceptance comes from, that's where our belongingness comes from, that's where the richness of life comes from. We were made to be woven together with him. We were created in his image, designed to live in this garden that he created as a base of operations, if you will, where we could meet with him, the Garden of Eden really functioned very much like the temple or tabernacle of God. It was the place where Adam and Eve and people were supposed to meet with God and from there go out into the rest of the world on God's behalf and with God's presence and power 
to shape the rest of the world. And he said, I want you to fill it up, I want you to be fruitful, I want you to multiply, I want you to subdue the earth, I want you to rule over it, I want you to do all of these things going out from this place anchored in relationship with me, that's why you're here, that's what your life's about, that's how I will be glorified, that's how you will be enriched, that's how the world will be blessed. So when Adam and Eve sinned and they are, they are expelled from the garden, that means they're cut off really from everything that they were made for. And they're exiled into a world that still has echoes. They still bear the marks of God. The image of God is not gone, but it's now distorted. And the world itself still has much that's good, but it's also got much that's not. And in fact, it's under a curse. And there's all of these complications and challenges, and many of them are are wicked and, and broken and sinful, and all of these kinds of problems are part of what it is to be kicked out of the garden to live in this world now. And so as Adam and Eve leave, they, they walk into a world that is filled with sin, that is filled with brokenness, that is filled with frustration and futility. Things that are supposed to work don't. And they are, in fact, uh, God has said, I will, I, I will not abandon you. In fact, I will send a deliverer one day who will fix things. And that's the overarching promise that holds human history together and holds their souls together, but it's one of those big um, sovereignty of God defining purposes that we experience from the top down. We can see it, we can hear it, we can understand it, and over time we can see it at work, but in our bottom-up daily experience we sometimes often actually wonder, how does that work? What does that even mean? I don't even see that. Right, where is God in my life? What's, the presence of God is distant and veiled in their daily experience as they walk into this world where things go even more awry. They, they, they live in a, a, a marital relationship that is now filled with strife. They have family that is filled with dysfunction. They have children who are sibling rivals, not in a playful or kind of positive sense, but in a devastating sense, and one son, in fact, is so angry at how he's treated that he kills the other son. Every moment, every, everything that goes wrong, Adam and Eve could have looked at and, and literally said, that's, that's down to me. I, that's actually my fault. I actually unleashed that on the earth, right? And in this process, we are made to be in relationship with God, but yet God is, is distant, and he's veiled. He hasn't abandoned, but he's distant and veiled to our daily experience, and it's a real struggle. And then, over time, God works out his promise, as he said that he would, and it begins with a family that he chooses to create a people from, and then he takes them into a, a new place and brings them into the promised land under Moses and Joshua, makes them into a nation, gives them a covenant, and uh, here's how to live in relationship with me, and, and there's a lot of different aspects to that, a lot of moral aspects. But before he gets to those details, there's just a few of those that he lays out before he says, before we go any further, we have to make it possible for me to be with you. Because fundamentally, it's about my presence among you. It's about this relationship. And so here's how to build the tabernacle. Here's exactly what it's to look like. Here's how it's to function. This has to be portable. It has to go with you wherever you go because I'm going to be with you. And he answers the heart cry. He answers the deep need. We need relationship with God. We were built for relationship with God. 
And here's the answer. Only it's an answer that doesn't work. Right? God comes up with an answer and it doesn't work. And understand, again, from the bottom up experience, God's working something and he's got it in control and he's gonna accomplish his purposes in the end. But in their daily experience, it's not working. And there's, it, it, they have this increasing sense of, of frustration and this increasing sense of longing and this increasing sense of need. And he set up a whole system for how to know him, how he would be among them. And it starts in the tabernacle. Later it transforms into the temple and there's the first temple, the second temple. There's a few adjustments that go along but it has the same basic structure. There's a building in the middle which has two rooms. There's uh, the outer room that's called the holy place and there's things that go on in there all the time. The priests are in and out, changing out the bread and, and, and burning the incense and keeping the candles lit and all these different things that happen in that room. It's kind of a hive of activity. And then there's a veil and on the other side of that veil is the holiest place, the holy of holies. And that's the room where God will manifest his presence. That's the room where the Ark of the Covenant is kept, which is this sacred box, and inside that box is the Ten Commandments, the literal Ten Commandments written on stone or in that box, and there's, a, there's a, a, a jar that holds manna that reminds them of God's miraculous provision, and then there's the, the rod that Aaron used, his staff, which was used in all kinds of miracles, and it even used in a showdown where people thought they knew better than God, and we get to call the shots, and we're gonna set aside Aaron and Moses because we don't wanna listen to them anymore even though you chose them, and blah, 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 and in that showdown, Aaron's rod grows almonds, right? It sprouts, it flowers, it buds, and there's almonds on it. And it's like, whoa, amazing things. And so we're gonna put that in the Ark of the Covenant. Those are all reminders. And then over the top of the Ark of the Covenant, there is a lid that's called the mercy seat, which is where God was pictured to be enthroned. It was like his footstool on earth. And his presence would manifest above that place. That was where it was supposed to be that we would meet with God and, and we would be made right with God. That was the place of atonement. And in the room were these figures, these cherubim, these angelic creatures that were terrifying. Right now, all of the imagery of the temple is actually designed and of the tabernacle is actually designed to remind us of Eden. And it's designed to remind us of this this a lifelong, all of human history long problem of being separated from God. When Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, they are expelled to the east. So whenever you'd come to the temple or the tabernacle, you would come from the east into the temple, back into the presence of God. The garden was filled with trees and fruit and those kinds of things and there were these angelic beings put at the edge to guard it, these cherubim, and so when you came into the tabernacle, you came into the temple, there were all these carvings and, and tapestries with imagery of fruits and trees and cherubim. You were literally walking back to where you were expelled from is the picture. And that was a beautiful picture, but the picture also served to just highlight the fact that it's not actually working. It's not actually working. We're still separated from God because the priests would go into the holy place. Nobody else could. Nobody else was ever allowed in there, only the priests. 
If you were not a priest, you had to stay outside. Initially, there was just one courtyard, and then they kept adding courtyards. So at one point, it was just this peeling off layers of you're not very good, and you don't get to be with God kind of feel. So the Gentiles have to stay here. The women have to stay here. The men have to stay here. The priests get to go in here, but they can't go in there. Only the high priest can go into the Holy of Holies. He can only go one time a year, and he's got to offer these special sacrifices, these special offerings, first for himself and then for everyone else. And so this whole system that was set up to say, coming back into the presence of God, and here I am among my people, and you can know me, and you can be with me, was this constant reminder that actually that's not the way it worked. And the high priest would go in there Year after year after year after year, daily, the priests would be sacrificing. Animals were dying all the time. Things were being offered up all the time. And then on the special day of atonement, where we're supposed to be made right with God, there were special sacrifices, and the priest would take the blood in, and he would, there'd be incense in the room and filled with smoke, and he would go into the holy place, the holiest place, and he would drop the blood from the sacrifice onto the mercy seat. Now, a priest would do this for years and years and years. Each year, he would go back in, the same high priest. And because it was a priestly family, it was probably his father before him and his grandfather before him and his great-grandfather before him or uncle or great-uncle, somebody close. And when he was gone, it would be his son and his grandson and his great-grandson. And they would do this over and over and over and over and over again. And, And as he's dropping the blood onto the mercy seat... There are stains on that lid of a thousand years, a thousand years of stains of blood that's been poured out every year, year after year after year, and nothing, at least at the level they're experiencing things, is really changing. I don't really see God. I mean, in the big scheme of things, I can see things that he's working out and he has prophets that will speak for him from time to time. But at the end of the day, most of us can't even come into the room. I can only come in here once a year and I see all the evidence that this has been going on for generation after generation after generation after generation. And where's God? If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter nine. Now let's pick up our passage. This is written to Christians and probably to people that are seriously considering following Christ but haven't yet decided who are of a Jewish background. And so all that we were just describing is what he wants them to bring to the text says verse one of chapter nine, even the first covenant had regulations for worship, an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence, it's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. In other words, he doesn't want us to get hung up on that, but he is wanting to bring all that that means into this passage because he's now gonna say, you guys know that, 
Now look at Jesus. So moving on. These preparations, verse 6, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open. That's really important. That's where he wants us to understand. He's shifting our focus to Jesus. By this we can see that the entrance, the way into the holy places is not yet open. As long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So he says, as long as the structure's in place like this, we actually can't get to God, right? Just kind of paraphrasing it to capture what he's saying, right? That first room was actually to keep people out of the second room. It was to make it possible only for certain people to do certain things necessary, but nobody got to go into the second room except the high priest. He only got to go there once a year. Everything about the structure that says God's among us is designed to say, but not really. I mean, he's there, but we don't get to be with him. We kind of get to be with him, but only from a distance, and it's not really the experience that we need. It's not the intimacy that we crave. It's not what we were made for. We've not been restored. We are still outside of Eden, if you will. And what we long for, what we need, is not yet open to us. And as long as that structure's in place, there's no way in. And then he says, and that structure itself is actually symbolic. It's symbolic for the age that was. It says there's a time where they're going to be in this tension point where God has to be at a distance. God hasn't abandoned, but he has to be at a distance because we haven't been made right. And all of these things that we're doing These externals are only symbols, they're only pointers. Now because they're external doesn't mean they're wrong. These are the the externals that God put in place. But this religion, this is about religion really, this religion, this pious practice doesn't cut it. It does not deliver what we need, it does not deliver what we're supposed to have. It only points to it. And, and it involves you know, various washings and food ceremonies and drinks, all these things, and they all have their place, but at the end of the day, they leave us exactly where we started. They are not able to perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Right? This is about worshipers. This is about people who genuinely are seeking God. So this doesn't cut it. It won't change them inside. They will come in and they will go out and they'll do their best and they will always wonder where they stand with God because they will know internally, I am broken. I can put up a front and I can even be sincere. I'm not really putting up a front. I'm trying to be authentic. This is what I'm really seeking to do. But at the end of the day, I'm the problem. Right? We we know that's true. Um, It shows up all kinds of ways. Um, I'm a fan of, of old science fiction movies. Right, so the best class B science fiction movie of all time, you may have a different opinion and it's okay, you're wrong, but that's fine, you can be wrong, um, is, is a movie called uh, The Forbidden Planet. 
and it's, uh, it's just the best of the class Bs. And, and the, the people from Earth wind up on this planet that had an alien civilization that has died out. And over time, they were so advanced, they had this amazing technology, and as the Earth people begin to learn how to use the technology, all kinds of havoc breaks loose. It's a 50s movie, so it's very Freudian. The, the id gets out, right? This monster from the id. But the point of the movie is this. These people of old, their, their, their technology and their, their science, all that, way outpaced their character. And the problem wasn't out there, it was in here. And that's what destroyed them because somehow their science and technology now let that out and it literally ate them. And now that we're following in their footsteps, the same thing's happening. It's not out there, it's in here. Here's my problem, right? Popular music. If you're a baby boomer, you remember The Who, and they had their big rebellion song. We don't get fooled again, right? We're gonna overthrow everything and so on. And there's this powerful line in that song. It says, meet the new boss. Same as the old boss. We can overthrow things, we can change, we have this radical revolution, but the problem is within. Right, if you're um, Gen X, you may remember NXS. Every single one of us, the devil inside, that's the problem. The rest of you, imagine dragons. Don't get too close. It's dark inside. That's where my demons hide. It, it shows up all different kinds of ways. We just know this is true. And not just in popular culture, really thoughtful, really insightful people have pointed this out for us. It appears to be a true story that... Um, the London Times sent out to people 110, 120 years ago, writers and thinkers saying, what's the problem with the world? Would you write us an essay on that? And one of the people they sent off to was G.K. Chesterton, a Christian writer and thinker of real significance. And he wrote back his answer. Here it is. Dear sirs, what is wrong with the world? Quote, I am, end quote. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. Now, he was known for being a little snarky, actually a lot snarky, but he's actually being serious. That's what he meant. I'm the problem of the world. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who um, was given a Nobel Prize, was a thinker and writer and world changer, really, survived the gulags of the Soviet Union and all kinds of evil that he experienced. And he, and he said this, he said, there is a line between good and evil in this world. And that line runs right through my heart. See, the problem is that banishment from Eden and that, that need from God to be restored has to start inside. And even the system God himself set up could only go so far. It was a, it was a, 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 a drama. It, it was a symbolic drama of faith pointing to what was yet to happen, but it hadn't happened. And that old system would never accomplish what we needed. That had to wait for Jesus. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, now that's shifted. Right, that old system couldn't deal, it couldn't perfect the conscience of the worshiper. 
It, we, we were waiting until the time of reformation. Then verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perf- perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the, persons with the ashes of a heifer, which was another Old Testament ritual, if they sanctify for the pur- purification of the flesh, he's really talking about the physical reality there, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from bad works to serve the living God? All these external things that had their place only went so far. But Jesus has now changed everything because the change comes from the inside out. That would never perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but now the conscience of the worshiper can be purified and we can be freed to serve the living God, freed from the dead works to serve the living God. That's what's needed, right? And as he's talking about um, that holy place made without hands. Later on, he's gonna use that same imagery and he's gonna talk about Jesus' body and it's, it's kind of a, a flexible image. Here, he doesn't seem to want us to get too tied up in what exactly he's referring to. He's referring to the spiritual as opposed to the physical. He's referring to heaven as opposed to earth, right? He's referring to the fact that Jesus, instead of just entering the earthly temple, which he was actually not able to do because he wasn't from the tribe of Levi, so he couldn't go into the building, he entered into the literal presence of God. He didn't take the sacrifice, the blood from some bull or some goat. He took his own blood, and it wasn't just some animal that was offered up, it was he who offered himself, and his, his sacrifice is so superior. Their sacrifices were day after day after day after day after day after day for generations. Even the Day of Atonement was year after year after year after year until there's a thousand years of blood stains on the mercy seat. It's just this repeated thing, and Jesus has gone in, and he's done it once for all. There's this radical shift that says everything that's gone before was just a preview. Now here's the real thing. So, I want us to just think about this in practical terms for ourselves for a few minutes. The flow of the passage, I think, is not that complicated if you get a running start at it and get the the background. What he's really saying is Jesus has solved the problem that's been hanging over us since the Garden of Eden. And even though the temple structure, the tabernacle structure was to picture the solution to that, it didn't solve it. It's only as Jesus has come that we actually can come back into the actual presence of God because we ourselves will be purified. We ourselves will be changed from the inside out. It's not just dealing with the physical realities. It goes to the very fiber of our being and goes to the core of what God has always wanted in this world. It will transform. And so he's, he's calling them to that truth because remember, these are people who have been 
kind of on the fence or kind of on, un, under fire probably is more accurate. They're, they're experiencing a lot of pressure and, and so what do we do with this in our faith? Do we stand for Christ? And then there's others who probably haven't come to faith. They're part of the community that are seriously engaged and interested, but they've not yet said, yeah, I'm in. I'm, you know, I'm gonna follow Jesus, period. That's, that's who I am. And so he's, he's speaking to all of those people and he's saying, look, the things that you grew up with, the beauty of the whole system which God himself gave us, of, of the whole old covenant system, the Jewish religious practices didn't work. It wasn't a failure of God. He had the bigger plan. He was always working. And it was, if you will, a, a, a placeholder for your faith to say, in faith, I'm gonna do these things looking forward to what's really gonna accomplish it. But he's saying, that's all past. The real has actually come. The, there, you can come into the presence of God. There's no separating tent. Jesus has made that possible. And so he, he gives us in this passage a, a, a couple of contrasts that we need to track with and then try to apply it for ourselves. The contrast really focuses on three things. There's a contrast with the sanctuary itself. And then there's a contrast with the sacrifice. And then there's a contrast of what it does for the worshipers. Contrast with the sanctuary, um, in shorthand, he doesn't use this word in this passage, but he does in other places of Hebrews, is the contrast between the shadow and the reality, right? The earthly picture and the heavenly substance, right? The, the, the tabernacle was a picture, but it never was the real deal. The real presence of God in heaven isn't entered through the tent. It's entered another way. And so he's drawn this contrast and said Jesus has opened up that way. There's this contrast between the sacrifice, right? The sacrifices of the old system, there were daily sacrifices, there were annual cycle sacrifices, and the most significant, which is the one he focuses on most precisely, is the sacrifice of the Day of Atonement, which is actually more than one, because the priest sacrificed for himself and then he sacrificed for the people. Right, so the daily sacrifices were over and over and over and over and over and over again. The annual cycle sacrifices would happen every year. The Day of Atonement, one year after another after another. It's a repeatable thing. It doesn't actually endure. It doesn't accomplish its purpose long term. You have to, you have to recharge. You have to re-up. And now there's this sacrifice. Jesus has offered himself once for all. It's a one and done. Not the way we tend to use that as an oops, we blew it and we're out of the playoffs, but it's a one and done. That was it. The only thing that needed to happen has happened. It's, it's finished. The one singular, all-encompassing, forever valuable, forever sufficient sacrifice has been made. So there's this contrast between the sacrifices and where the focus of the sacrifices is, one is focused on the externals, the other one's on the internals. Because it's not just the circumstances of life, it's me. I need to be fixed. And it's only the second sacrifice that actually can accomplish that. It's only Jesus who actually accomplishes that. The, the third contrast is the worshipers themselves. Verse nine, look at that again. It says, under that old system, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. They only deal with these external things. Skip down to verse 14. 
the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, will purify your conscience from dead work. Excuse me, to serve the living God. <clears throat> I developed a sudden allergy to my own voice and now I'm choking on it. Right, so there's this contrast. This, um, it, won't, it won't change me inside too. It completely changes me inside and it prepares me then to be a servant of the living God. That's what Jesus brings. All that has been needed since the moment we were exiled from Eden has been accomplished in Christ. And all that we long for, all that would bring us to where we need to be. Thank you. Looks like a dog treat. Mm. Thank you. If your daughter brings you something, you have to take it no matter what it is, right? Ah, that's helpful. So all that we need has been done in Jesus. So the question really comes down to um, what does that mean for us today? See, now if another pastor brings you something, you gotta do that too. Like, I, I'm, I'm still here, anyone else bringing? <laughs> I hear chocolate cake is really good for your voice. I'm just, <laughs> just saying. Um, so there's the picture, that's what he wants us to understand. And then walking away from that, he wants us to change. And I think there's really two key things that we personally should wrestle with. With them, it's anchoring them because they're getting wobbly. It's reminding them, this is the only path. This is the one that works. This is the one that changes everything. This is what you long for. This is what you need. And only Jesus can give that. And it's not just a religious practice. It's intended to change everything. It's intended to restore you to this intimacy with God that you were made for that's to derive every detail of your life. Right, in this passage, there are two areas that I think would be good for us to focus on. The first one is this simple question. It's how do I look at Jesus and the gospel and religion? How do I look at my moral program, my spiritual journey? Um, I heard this expressed a number of years ago and I loved it, I, so I just grabbed it and, and like to use it because I think it, it really captures the issue. How do you think about those things? Do you use a present tense or a past tense? Is it all about do or all about done? So many of us live in the world of do. Here's what I'm gonna do, here's what's needed. I got, you know, there's all this pressure to live this kind of moral life or to pursue this kind of spiritual journey or to accomplish these virtues or fill in the blanks. That's where religion falls, that's where so much practice falls, that's where so much of our lives fall. We're, we just are, are on this, this wheel of go, 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 go. I gotta fix it, I gotta pursue, I gotta grow, I gotta, I gotta learn, I gotta... Is that how you see life, particularly life with God? You're the one who has to perform or he doesn't want you around because that's a lie. The picture we have here is that it all rests on Christ. Do, there's a place to do things, but we've got it in the wrong place. We give it so much the wrong significance and we think it gives us significance, which is the problem. It's about done. 
Jesus has done what is necessary. The old religious system that God himself put in place was a good pointer, it was a good object lesson, it was a good drama to be lived out week in, week out, and it was a way to express faith before the cross. But at the end of the day, the only thing that accomplishes what we need is Jesus himself, and he has done what is needed. He has once for all offered himself. He has once for all opened access to God, intimate, personal access to God. That's the gospel. So for some of us, that's where we need to start. Say, all of these uh, ancient truths and interesting kind of bits of historical theology actually cash out in life with the same question. Is my life built around what I'm doing or is it built around what God has done in Christ? And some of us, maybe like some of them, are, are kind of on the fence. We're, we're, we haven't even actually decided if we're in with Jesus or not and we're still trying to figure it out. Let me just encourage you. The only way in is to surrender and you not try to do anything. You just surrender and trust. Because the answer to all of my shortcomings isn't me overcoming them. It's me fleeing to Christ. He's the one who has fixed it. He's the one who's accomplished. He's the one who's made it possible. And, and he's made it possible for me to be purified from the inside out. The worshipers of old never really knew where they stood. They'd work hard, they'd try, but it's like, I, I don't know. I, you know, I go in and I try to worship God. I'm not sure what he's doing. I know me, I'm a mess. Right, now I can be the worshiper of God who's being transformed. And even in my mess, I have a confidence that's rooted in Christ, not in me. Right, there's this purification of the conscience that allows me to freely serve God. Have you surrendered and trusted and embraced the gospel? Because if you haven't, that's it. That is the issue. God has pursued you and he's opened the door and you don't climb through it you kneel, and he brings you through it because Jesus is the one who's done what's necessary. He's the perfect ultimate sacrifice that makes all those other things passe. Now, here's another question because some of us, it, it's actually pretty easy to come to faith, to try to live a life of faith and still fall back into that same pattern. Read the book of Galatians. That's people who are struggling with do versus done after they're following Jesus. In fact, there's a beautiful verse near the end of the book that has just come more and more precious to me where it says, it is for freedom that he has set you free. He has set you free, not to be on this hamster trail of moral improvement, but to be free to walk in relationship with Jesus. Does holiness matter? Yes. Do I need to do things? Yes. Is discipline a thing that you pair up with spiritual? Yes. But it does not have the role that I often let it take on, right? My life is defined by Jesus. The gospel is always my sanctuary and I am free to live in relationship with him. And so some of us, some of us keep going back to the do side of things, driving our lives and we forget it's, it's done. 
It's done. Rest in Christ. Anchor in Christ. Abide in Christ and you will be fruitful. Be filled with the Spirit and you will be fruitful. Not, here's your self-improvement list. Some of us need to renew our, our hold on the gospel or maybe the gospel's hold on us. The other thing that I think is important for us to think about for just a minute here is right at the end when it says, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That's kind of where it ends, right? This is all to bring us into a place where we serve the living God. Now the word serve there is not the word that's most often used, which is just like, service like you'd think. It's the word that refers to service of worship, like in Romans 12, where it says this is your spiritual service of worship. At the end, the the verse that we've taken from this book to be the title about receiving an unshakable kingdom talks about our service of worship, if you will, and he's saying that's what I've been saved for, to live that kind of relationship, where what's defining about me is I am a servant of God, not I'm doing all these things because God likes cheap labor, and he's hoping I'll help him out because he's a little bit overwhelmed right now. He doesn't need my help. It is him inviting me into the vibrancy of what he made me for. This partnership where he and I are together by his power, following his will and seeing things happen. Right? He's saying, you've been purified so you can actually fully engage in that. You don't have to be concerned, do I measure up? It doesn't matter if you measure up. You're Christ's. You get to be a part. Jump in both feet. I love that idea, you know, the, the, the servant of God. Wouldn't that be a great epitaph just on your gravestone? Servant of God, here lies Robert Bishop, servant of God, or in obituary column in the newspaper. You know, the stuff you'd expect. Here's Robert Bishop, blah, blah, blah. Uh, let's see, family man, faithful friend, longtime pastor, um, incisively witty, uh, terribly charming, and devastatingly good looking. Hey, when you're writing yours, you get to write it your way. Actually, I was, I was a little hurt the other day, Alan, when you started this series off and you said that uh, John reminded you of, well, John was like, he looks like Adonis and has the mind of Einstein. I don't know why those categories, actually, you probably would have flipped it around. He looks like Einstein and has the mind of Adonis, which just, never mind, don't say anything. Right, so... You know, we have all these ideas of how we want to be remembered, and we've got all these images that we have, and wouldn't it be cool if? It's like, here's the goal, that people would not be able to tell my story or your story without these words, servant of God. I don't think there's really a higher epitaph. I don't think there's a better obituary line that could be written about me, especially when you understand it the way he's using it. He's already said it's about something that flows from the inside out. It's from that purified conscience place that now I can partner with God in the world. That's what life is to be. So my question is, is that where your life is? If someone was to say, you know, there's probably a lot of labels, but the one I have to pick is serving a God. I just couldn't tell their story without using those words. And if not, why not? What response to Jesus would clear the path for that to be true? 
Because that's what he's saying Jesus has come and accomplished. And let me refine that just a little bit more because I think some of us are probably at a, a pivot point where we're struggling. Am I really gonna, is it really all gonna be about Jesus or not? I think a lot of people in this room have actually crossed that line a long time ago. It would not be possible to tell your story or my story without saying servant of God. That's totally what defines it. So let me bring it down a little bit more granular focus. That's true, I think, in my life, big picture. What about right now? What about right now? Because I have ups and downs. And in this particular moment, is that really the best label? He's living to serve God right now. Because there's a lot of subtle idols that creep in. They do in my life. I think that's a really good question to come back to. Serving a God. At first, is that really the defining picture for my life? But then is that the defining picture for this moment? Because Jesus has come and he has accomplished all of this. He's presented himself and through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purifying our consciences from dead works so that we are actually able to serve the living God to be restored to what we were actually made to be. Jesus fulfills the longing that, is, that has been over the top of all of human history from the very beginning. All of that was pictured about going back into the temple, back into the Garden of Eden, back into the presence of God, but was only a picture, it's now real through Jesus. It's about what he's done, not what I'm doing. And what I'm to be, as that relationship unfolds, is this servant worshiper of God whose life is just wrapped up in his. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace and your mercy and your sacrifice. We are so grateful. Thank you. Lord, you know where each of us is. I pray that you would help us to respond to you in this moment in a way that on. That, that, un, that it clears the path, it clears the path for us to enjoy your grace more fully. Whether that's a path of salvation or a path of sanctification. Lord, may we be servants of God because you have purified us and brought us into relationship and that's what defines us. I pray that you would use our lives and the fruit of our lips to bring honor to your name. I pray that you'd use this offering that we take to bring honor to your name. Pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we're in a territory of, of rich and deep thanksgiving for what Jesus has done for us and the cost 